0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the looming decision on the future of policing in the city of Surrey. Finally, the provincial government here set to deliver the verdict in this long-running fight. That could happen this Friday. Does Surrey proceed with a new municipal police force, the Surrey Police Service, or does Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke and her city councillors get their way? They want to keep the RCMP in Surrey, the final decision set to be made by the provincial government. Let's listen to the Solicitor General here now. Here's Mike Farnworth.
1: This is the largest RCMP detachment in the country and is certainly the most complex and largest transition I would suggest in the history of the province. Going back is, 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 is as I said, it's not like sw- putting on a switch uh, you know, off and on. Uh, it's very complex uh, because you've got the work that's been done to date, uh, you've got all the human resource issues.
0: Okay, this decision is looming. Which way is it going to go? Let's debate it now. We've got both sides of it for you. Paul Danes, very pleased to welcome him back. Paul is a spokesperson for the group Keep the RCMP in Surrey. Paul, thank you for coming on. No, oh, You're welcome, Mike. Okay, also on the line is Cash Heed, Richmond City Councillor, former Solicitor General of the province, and I'm very pleased to welcome Cash back. Cash, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, good morning to both of you guys. Paul, let me go to you first. This decision appears to be maybe 48 hours or less away. What would you say, give me your best argument here for keeping the RCMP in Surrey. Why do you want to see that happen?
1: Well, first of all, um, it's the, uh, the wish, uh, the democratic wish expressed at the ballot box, um, voting for Brenda Locke and her team to keep the RCMP in Surrey. We have been told over the four and a half years of our campaign by the provincial government consistently that ultimately the decision on choice of policing um, is uh, the city of Surrey and the city of Surrey only. The only thing we're advised of that the Solicitor General has as a number one priority is maintenance of uh, public safety. We believe Uh, The RCMP have policed our community successfully uh, with the support of the community for now 73 years. Um, As Kashid has said on many occasions, and you can find this at a click of a mouse, the SPS transition is a flawed process and a failed experiment. He also said that the SPS uh, and Doug McCallum, the past mayor, couldn't change a car tire, never mind a police force.
0: Okay, well, he's let's been see. Critical
1: of the hiring process of the Chief of Chief Lipinski, and he's been uh, on uh, Facebook with Brenda Locke and Past Councillor Jack Hundle, saying that the public has been left out of the discussion. Why well, would it, we trust? Well, let's the go FCS to yes, when that's the position of Cashheed.
0: Well, let's go to Cashheed right now. Cash, what is your position on this?
2: Well, let me tell you, Mike, we're not on your show to debate uh, me on this, uh, I hope. I'm here to talk about what I've talked about for decades here, building the most effective, efficient, and accountable police service for a municipality that has its fair share of public safety issues. And I've advocated for these reforms. Mike, we have talked for the past 20-some-odd years about those reforms. And you know I've been an advocate for a regional police service. Those police reforms that will bring the accountability, the efficiency, and the effectiveness back to local communities it's it's the facts that we need to consider here under the dc police act even going back to the constitution here in canada where the actual responsibility of policing comes to the province the province delegates that authority if they wish down to local governments to create that protective service and public safety so if you look at who's responsible for policing within our province it's the provincial government and the important thing to remember Here is the fact that the government has caused this ongoing public debate on this issue by not making a decision early on.
0: Okay, you believe, though, that the Surrey Police Service transition should continue, correct?
2: Well, it's a flawed process, and and Mr. Dane is correct, and uh, I would have liked to have seen a model built where you included the people in Surrey and what we need to do. Just by the simple vote of electing a particular government doesn't necessarily indicate that that's what the municipality needs. I believe it's already on its way and that we would be moving police reforms backwards in the province of British Columbia if we did not carry through with the transition.
0: Do you think it's better for public safety in the city to keep going forward with the new police force?
2: Well, absolutely, it's a start to increase public safety throughout the entire region.
0: Okay, Paul Danes, why do you think people would be safer in the city with the RCMP instead of this new police force?
1: Well, first of all, they are the current police jurisdiction. I think that the uh, Surrey Police Service option is is very bad for public safety. They've been poaching officers from every other municipality around the Lower Mainland. They, they, they are in, um, imposing on the Justice Institute. Um, just a, one example of many of uh, uh, a public safety issue that's in part being caused by the SPS is the uh, Surrey Police Service poaching 12-plus officers from BC Transit over the last year. And, you know, just put that in the context of recent crimes and stabbings and so on. Um, basically, The number one issue for me personally is, and uh, I'm I'm sure Kashid would relate to this, Sir Robert Peel, generally acknowledged as the founder of modern policing, stated, There can be no policing of a community without the consent of the community. I believe it's detrimental to public safety to impose something that is clearly not wanted by at least 72% of the population. I've got 50,000 signatures. To keep the RCMP in Surrey, and we participated in another uh, petition, uh, also for a referendum, um, uh, you know, f- which got us 42,000 signatures. We presented that to the provincial government. They told us then, as they've been telling us now for the last four years, this is a decision for the city of Surrey. If you have issues with policing, take it to the city of Surrey.
0: Okay, Kashy. Let me go back to Kashy. Get his thoughts on that. Kash, given all that, why do you think the new police force should go forward? If most, if if the people of Surrey want to keep the Mounties,
2: well, I think we have to be correct on the facts on the amount of people that actually voted for this uh, particular. Uh, uh, party we have in place in Surrey right now, and I think we have to be cognizant of the percentage, the low percentage of voters going forward. So when we advocate for certain numbers, we have to be correct on the facts. The RCMP right now have uh, credibility problems. You just have to go back in the recent Nova Scotia inquiry. You have to go back and look at these some of the settlements, over a billion dollars with their own particular members within their department. We've had successive commissioners who have failed to reform the RCMP. I don't see any police reforms that are so sadly needed across north america going forward with the rcmp and every police agency across canada is hiring police officers right now it's highly competitive and the pool is very shallow so there's going to be these gains back and forth regardless of the color of uniform in surrey
0: all right debating the future of policing in surrey the final verdict looming here from the provincial government this week. Lots of calls. Rick in Surrey. Hi, Rick. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I wonder how many of these uh, police have been hired by the Surrey Police Department the RCMP uh, uh, people that are moving over are double-dipping their uh, high-end pensions, getting, to, getting their pension plus their salary, plus making another pension.
0: I I am not sure Paul do you know it like I, I know there were difficulties in figuring out these pension issues in the transition your thoughts
1: Uh well a good question Rick um my view of uh, the SPS senior management is is that they're bloated uh, the normal ratio for um management to uh, frontline police officers is 9 to 1 the SPS have 3 to 1 senior managers and ncos so that's that's not a good situation also The Surrey Police Service have hired a lot of middle to senior managers at the back end of their career who've uh, no doubt signed for, you know, quite legal lawful reasons, you know, enhancing their career and pension payoffs. Yes, a lot of them are double dipping. OK, happy about it. No.
0: Cash heed keeping the RCMP would be a lot cheaper for Surrey taxpayers, would it not? Yes, but you've got to look at the quality
2: of policing that's going to be delivered in that particular area. Now, it may be cheaper at this particular time, but moving forward is where you're going to see those efficiencies Uh, taken away you won't be able to garnish the efficiencies such as uh, going with a different model of policing we've got short-term thinkers on this right now we've got to look at the long term what's best for the people that live work and play in syria and not just for 2023 2024 you've got to look at it down the road to see what political reforms police reforms are required
0: to make this happen Let's go to Brad on the open line in Langley. Hi, Brad. Go ahead.
3: Hey, so I have a, my concern is, like, accountability, right? So RCMP, that's federal, and then if you have the Surrey police, that's going to be on a municipal level, right? And quality of policing, like, you have a lack of people that want to become RCMP officers, and then the whole funding issue, too, like... They're not getting the funding, the RCPR. Like, I keep hearing the promises made. They're not getting the funding on the federal level. Like, funding be. Okay.
0: The okay, thank you for the call. Let's take his main point there, Paul. Local accountability. Isn't it better with a local police force? No, it isn't. First of all, we've got a police chief who
1: refuses to be accountable to the mayor, duly elected, and council. Um, and uh, refused to stop hiring refused to stop major capital purchases until he was ordered to do so by the solicitor general secondly local accountability we have a police board um, not one of whom has any policing experience whatsoever Um, 85 percent of their meetings are conducted in camera Um, what else can i tell you about them um
0: well let's One get... member,
1: actually, a long association with the Hells Angels. They refuse what? to take delegations from the public. One of your recent guests, Ramona, captain of the Canadian Association of Retired People, has made numerous applications to appear in front of the uh, police board to express concerns about how the senior community in Surrey has been totally ignored and neglected by the Surrey Police Service and their proponents.
0: Okay, Kashid, what do you say to all that?
2: Well, look at the police's jurisdiction right now, the RCMP. So if you wanted to point the finger, look at that particular agency, you've got to remember, we're going through a transition period. You can't blame one police agency for the other things. And, you know, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that we make reference to these particular issues when the chaos that's been created, when the environment that's being created, the discourse on this is so divisive here between SPS and the RCMP in particular, political groups and parties. That is part of the problem. So when they come in, when they internalize on trying to make decisions on accountability, you can understand that because it's all twisted and it's all spewed in a different direction than what it was intended to be. And I can tell you right now, Chief Lipinski is working within his authority under the BC Police Act.
0: Let's go to Jimmy on the line in Surrey. Hi, Jimmy, go ahead.
2: Yeah, hey, uh, guys, listen. First of all, I've been following Kashi for about 35 years, one of the greatest cops in Canada. I wish he
4: would have been the chief of the Surrey police here. But secondly, uh, you know, it seems to me that Paul's got some kind of a personal thing about the RCMP, like the old white guard. I'm sick of this guy, you know. Let's get on with some new ideas and new
1: that should have been happening a long time ago. Thank you.
0: All right, Paul. What do you say to him?
1: <laughs> uh, well, I totally disagree with that. The bottom line is, is that the RCMP are acknowledged globally as being one of the finest police forces in the world. The FBI consult with them on training. They 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 are a Canadian institution. They have um, defended our, our our rights and and kept us safe and protected us in Surrey for seventy three years. I don't want to take a risk on some unknown quantity. And certainly not based on the performance of lackluster performance of Chief Lipinski and his guys. It's been pathetic. And it's generally just not acceptable to us in Surrey to have this imposed on us. No okay, what, without consent.
0: What's your final? Let's wrap it up here, guys. I'll go back to Kashid. Kash, Cash, what, what is your final message here to the province as... As they get set to make this big decision, it could, could come down on Friday, it appears. What do you think is the most important factor here?
2: The most important factor here is police reforms and the fact that we're just dealing with the Nova Scotia inquiry on the lack of credibility within the RCMP. At the end of the day, Mike, this will be a political decision, which is unfortunate. It won't be what is right for the people in Syria. And that's the understanding based on the fact that we've gone to the last day before they make the decision because the budgets have to be into the provincial government by May 15th. So Friday, the last day, the chaos is caused by the NDP government. If we decided months ago, we'd be well on yeah. our way.
0: Okay, Paul, Paul Danes, you've got 30 seconds here to wrap it up. What would you, what would you okay. say to Mike Farnworth this morning?
1: Uh. Keep the RCMP in Surrey, Mike, and yeah. put public safety first. And that, yeah. that, that's the bottom line, public safety. I'm not interested in uh, um, Cashheed's thoughts for the future. I'm interested in, as everyone in Surrey is, in public safety. I want seniors to be able to walk down the street safely and catch a bus without getting stabbed. And that, it, the best option for keeping the lid on that is the RCMP. <laughs>
0: Okay, here we go now with the future of Airbnb in British Columbia. Super popular. There are thousands of Airbnb units in BC. Lots of critics of Airbnb as well, though. There have been complaints about loud parties in some Airbnb units. But the major complaint here, does Airbnb displace housing for people who actually live here. Now, lots of municipalities have brought in rules and regulations on how Airbnb and other short-term rentals like Verbo can operate. Vancouver, for example, Victoria have brought in rules, but lots of people breaking the rules too. So some of these units, I think for sure, are basically being used as hotel rooms, just being rented out every single night. Does that now displace that home as a home for someone who actually lives here now we talked about this on the show yesterday i spoke to bc's housing minister ravi Kalon. he said straight up the province is getting set to intervene here they're going to move in what are they going to do could they regulate airbnb could they bring in tougher rules and restrictions penalties taxes may be coming have a listen to what he had to say to me yesterday here's the housing minister ravi Kalon describing some of the problems
2: it's a patchwork of ideas and policies yeah. ag- across British Columbia and across Canada. And, and what we hear consistently from local governments says, we don't even know who's operating. We don't know if they're following the rules. We have no enforcement tools if somebody is breaking the rules.
0: Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Rohana Rezal. Rohana is a Vancouver housing advocate, former city council candidate. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Rohana, thank you for coming on today. Well, Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Airbnb. And you've been a a fierce advocate for housing in the city. Do you think Airbnb creates a problem for creating more housing for people who actually live here?
5: Absolutely. Let's look at the numbers. There are around 3,700 short-term rental listings in the city. And out of those, 3,000, close to 3,000, are entire homes that are being used as Airbnbs. And out of that, about... uh, 2,500 have been uh, used as Airbnbs throughout the year. So these are not short-term rentals. These are not primary residences that people are using, you know, when they're on vacation. These are houses that are homes that are being used extensively as Airbnbs, as, as hotels. So these, yeah. these could all be rented out to long-term tenants.
0: Yeah, I've talked to people who live in condo towers in in Vancouver who say, like, they know there are lots of Airbnb units in their building because they can see people showing up every day with a suitcase. So they know that they're basically being operated like a hotel room in some cases, like you described there. Isn't that against the rules, though? I thought Vancouver brought in rules to stop that.
5: Vancouver did bring in rules to stop that, but there's A, there's very little enforcement, and B, it's almost an honor system in Vancouver. Anyone can um, just go online, apply, and get a license. And not all the licenses are audited. So lots of people just take you know, take tick, tick, uh, just gamble, and they just claim their their units to be principal residences, but they're not.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's have a listen to another clip here from the housing minister on yesterday's show, and I'll get your thoughts. So here is Ravi Kalon here talking about his concerns. Around housing supply in the province and how short-term rentals like Airbnb fit in here. Let's have a listen.
2: Find ways for more of our housing stock to come back to people who need housing, as opposed to um, you know being rented out for a couple of days uh, in a month to to make a few bucks. And so uh, we're in a housing crisis. Every unit that's available needs to come back home.
0: Okay, so he says we're in a housing crisis. Every unit available must be back. Available for people to live in, not used as like a hotel room for Airbnb. Rohana, what do you think the province should do here? What the province should do is hold the platforms accountable
5: because the way the rules are written right now, especially in Vancouver, it's only the hosts who have to who who are being um, targeted for enforcement. The Airbnb itself and other short-term rental platforms like VRBO, they get off scot-free. So even if the hosts are breaking the law, they never face any consequences. So what what the province needs to do is follow the uh, other jurisdictions, especially in Europe, where they hold the platforms accountable. For example, a couple of years ago, Paris fined Airbnb $10 million for the
0: violations. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay so what what was going on there why were they fined that much money
5: Because Airbnb failed to take any action against the hosts who were breaking the law Yeah and instead of it's it's playing whack-a-mole going after these uh going after individual hosts right There are so many of them and the cities the, the municipalities don't have the resources to go after individual hosts but yeah. if you can keep the platforms accountable and that's what they're doing with with uh with the ride hailing right um if 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 people if uh, if I, if a uber driver breaks the law then uber is held accountable and uber can't just say like hey this this guy is just an individual contractor who's just breaking the law but the same rules should apply to short term rentals as well because ultimately these platforms are profiting off these of these yeah. illegal rentals
0: speaking of rahana rezal he's a vancouver housing advocate so let me play a clip here for you rahana from a a listener on the show yesterday because the housing minister yesterday told me straight up the province is getting set to intervene here they are going to bring in some new rules and regulations not certain exactly what that will be maybe it will be some sort of enforcement on registering these units making sure the laws are followed maybe tougher fines and penalties you know have a listen to this guy this is dave in mission he called me yesterday on the open line And he says, look, maybe the government should just stay out of it. I mean, these are people's, this is private property. Why should the government tell you what to do with it? Have a listen to what he says here, and then I'll get your thoughts.
4: I think I'm getting a little bit tired
2: of the government telling me what I can and can't do with my after-tax money. If I decide to buy a home and rent it out as an Airbnb, the government isn't giving me anything other than taxes to to try and make me not do that. That's my
0: right. Okay. So he says, "Look, this is my home. This is my property. If I want to rent it out on Airbnb, I should be allowed to do that. The government should leave me alone. This is this is supposed to be a free country." What do you say to that argument?
5: Well, we live in a society. We live in a city with rules, right? Like, okay, by the same the logical extension of that is that I should be able to start a manure farm anywhere in the city because <laughs> it's my home. It's my right. Plus, um, if you're running a hotel, you have to play like a hotel. You have to pay taxes like a hotel. You have to follow the safety guidelines like a hotel. And if, if you want to start a hotel, find where zone zoned for, for for tourist accommodation. Start a hotel. There's no one stopping you. Yeah. But you can't have it both ways. You can't have all the benefits of a residential neighborhood. Pay low taxes and then run a ghost hotel.
0: Okay, what, a ghost hotel. Okay, that's an interesting description of it for sure. Now, let me ask you this, though. What about the other side of it, and that is the tourism sector, the tourism economy? Airbnb is super popular. You know, Our family has used it on vacations, and and it's great. I mean, people love it. And lots of people want to come here for a vacay as well, and they look at Airbnb as as an option. What a, this is a very important industry for us in British Columbia, these tourist dollars coming to BC. What about that side of it? What about the tourism sector?
5: Yeah, absolutely. The city needs to approve more, uh, more hotel bills. And um, a few years ago, there were lots of hotels being converted into condos. So what should happen is if you, if you want to grow the tourism sector, you have to build hotels and you have to incentivize hotel bills. That's, that's what needs to be done.
0: Let me play another caller here for you on yesterday's show because some people are saying, okay, if you have a place, don't rent it out on Airbnb. Rent it to a a long-term tenant. Listen to this caller here, Wes in Abbotsford, in the open line yesterday, who makes the argument, why shouldn't I just do a nightly contract? I'm sick and tired of, of dealing with tenants and problems. Let's have a listen and I'll get your thoughts.
5: I'm a landlord, luckily on my own rental. Um, It's been good. I've had good renters, but I've been advised by people in my situation rather than doing monthly rental fees, do nightly in a contract, kind of like Airbnb, to avoid the hassles that come along with trying to remove a renter.
0: Uh, So he says basically, if you become an Airbnb, then you don't have to worry about all the problems with a a long term tenant. Do you fear that? I've heard from landlords who have made the same argument that if you keep bringing restrictions in the on, in them on private residences, they'll just get out of the business of renting renting their property. Rohana, your thoughts?
5: Yeah. So, um, being a landlord is a business. Being a running an Airbnb is a business. So, if you want to run a business, you have to take certain risks. If you don't want to be a landlord, you have an option of selling your property. So that's one option so what's actually happening is a lot of people are are buying homes and they're using potential airbnb income when they calculate if they can afford it and that shouldn't be the case because again if, if 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 they don't buy it for the express purpose purpose of using it as an airbnb it might be available for a family to buy to live in so that's that's the factor that these people are ignoring
0: Do you think that this is going to be very interesting to see what the provincial government does here? The the housing minister told me yesterday they are getting set to move here. They are moving in on this sector. They're going to do something here, maybe to regulate it. Does that create the potential for just more government bureaucracy, red tape, fees, taxes? This is often what happens. The government steps in to fix something, and then it just becomes more it just becomes more expensive with additional taxes and fees. Do you think that's just something we have to, we've got to deal we have to deal with this problem?
5: I mean, I haven't seen the details. So, there are many jurisdictions that have enforced Airbnb well, especially in Europe and some yeah. parts of in California. And they've done a good job and they have managed to bring a lot of those Airbnb units back onto the market. Yeah. And at the same time you have some jurisdictions where it has failed miserably so it's uh it i really need to see the details to see to to comment on that but i i i think it's a good intention
1: yeah.
0: but the devil is the detail do you think okay last question for you do you believe that people should still be allowed to use air and airbnb to rent their place out let's say it's their permanent full-time home but maybe they want to rent it out while they're away, while they're on vacation. Maybe they do a lot of business trips. They want to rent their place out while they're away from their home. Should that continue to be allowed? Like as long as the the unit is still your principal residence, you should be able to rent it out occasionally.
5: Well, that's also a gray area because a lot of the time what happens is, I know people who, have, who live in condos and they have lots of issues with loud parties and uh and lots of guests coming in and out of their, out of the condos all the time. Yeah. So uh, the neighborhoods are for neighborhood for for people. Residential neighborhoods are for people living in, right? So not everyone enjoys living next to a hotel. But at the same time, I know I've I've lived I've be, I've visited I've stayed in uh, you know regular bed and breakfasts and they have been really great experiences. So I think I think in anything the city should encourage more of that where the host lives in the same property and rents out their spare bedroom. And that doesn't really impact the rental market as such, but at the same time, it gives a good experience with the guests.
0: Rohana, thank you very much for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about a four-day work week now. There's lots of interest in this concept. Now think about this now. Imagine if you had a long weekend, Every weekend. This is an idea that's been around for a long time. There have been campaigns in the past to make a four-day work week a reality. They haven't really gone anywhere in in the recent past until recently now. Now supporters of the four-day work week say there's more momentum for this than ever before. So some jurisdictions have brought in pilot projects to allow this. Uh, some employers are saying, we've tried it. We brought in a four-day work week for our people. It's working better for us. Productivity's doing well. Our company's doing well. Here in British Columbia now, we've talked about this on the show before, the call for at least a pilot project for a four-day work week. Now, the way this would work in B.C., we could bring in tax incentives for businesses who try it for their employees. So you create a carrot here. Get business employers to give it a try for their workers. This has been proposed by the BC Green Party. I spoke to Green Party leader Sonia Fersonow about it on an earlier show. Have a listen.
4: Workers are healthier, happier,
5: they're more satisfied. But the employers and the businesses also benefit. They see better productivity. They see their costs go down. They often see their revenues go up. So it really is a win-win
0: Okay, so she says it's a win-win. We should try this here in British Columbia, bring in some incentives for employers to bring in a four-day work week for their employees. Now, check out some of these stats now. New survey here by talent.com. This is a large recruiting platform in Canada. They surveyed British Columbians to find out how they felt about a 4-day work week. They found some interesting results and trends here. Let's discuss it now with my guest Robert Borisma. Robert is the head of sales strategy at talent.com. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey Robert, thanks for coming on today. Hi there, Mike. Happy to be here. Okay, Robert, tell me about the survey you did here in B.C. What did you find out?
4: Look, uh, the the B.C. results uh, reflected largely what uh, most Canadians feel. And in B.C. specifically, you know, 9 out of 10 folks said, yep, I am interested in a four-day work week. And that that held true really across Canada is that 90% of folks say, yes, I, I would be super interested if my employer uh, went in on that four-day work week, so people are looking for that work-life balance. People are looking for that uh, opportunity to have a little bit more of their time back.
0: Well, sure, you can understand why. Who wouldn't want to? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to work less? I mean, that for sounds sure. that sounds pretty good to just about everybody. So I'm not surprised <laughs> a lot of people are interested in it. Now, are there are some there are some concerns about it though, right? Like, what did you find out there if you dig deeper into your survey here?
4: There are for sure. Uh, You know, obviously, uh, I think everybody can agree that more of your personal time back is a good thing. But there's a reason you work. You know, you work for a lot of people, uh, you know, for for pay. And so that's kind of the top concern that people have is they say, well, I'm, I'm interested in having that time back, but I don't want to sacrifice the pay. And so you start to get into these conversations that. I think a lot of employers have on their mind when they say, well, how am I really going to do this? You know, if I give a four day work week, do we work the same amount of hours or fewer hours? Do I keep the same pay or can I do a reduction in pay? And what we saw in our survey is that only about 35% of people are actually willing to take a pay cut. So there is a group that says, you know what, I'll put my hand up. I'm willing to, to take a little bit less pay uh, in order to get that four day work week. But the majority of people say, you know what, I, I want that flexibility and I don't want to have to take a pay cut to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I, I, that's understandable too. Like a lot of people, sure, I want to work less, but I don't want to make less money. So if you continue yeah. to pay me the same amount of money, but I'm working for only four days a week. Well, sure. What's wrong with that? That sounds, that sounds awesome here. The, I guess the argument behind a four day work week by the people who support it is if you structure it correctly, if you're in the type of business you can, they can make this work, you can actually achieve the same productivity from your workers even with a a shorter work week so that's that's in theory what supporters supporters are saying but i know that like i've talked to people who say you know what this is kind of fantasy land stuff if you go to a four-day work week come on you're going to end up working working longer anyway you're going to you're going to end up working after hours and not getting paid overtime right like what did people tell you on that in that in your survey
4: yeah, look, that, that's one of the concerns as well. So, so folks are worried that uh, even though they're – well, l- let me start with this. Yeah. In terms of when asked, do you want to still work 40 hours a week, people said no. <laughs> so yeah. so you know, you know, people want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to you know, work yeah. actually 36 or fewer hours was the, the, the top recommendation from people in the survey without a pay cut. So they want to work fewer hours. Right. And so interestingly, they, they, you know, they're kind of saying, well, I, I don't want to have to make that sacrifice. I want the employer to make that sacrifice. And maybe my comment here would be right now in the Canadian economy, the power is really in the job seekers' hands. It's a tight labor economy right now. And, you know, we continue to see the Fed increase interest rates, try to slow us down a little bit. But the reality is because that power has shifted. So, I mean, the the unemployment to job rate right now is about 1.4. So there's almost not even enough workers to fill every single job in Canada right now. What that means is people can ask for that. <laughs> the, the, you know, there's been uh, companies already making pretty significant adaptations in order to, uh, to 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 try and recruit. Look at the hybrid schedule that we see is more popular now because of COVID. Uh, people, you know, about 43% of people in our survey said, "Hey, this is just a continuation of hybrid, 40 work weeks, just a continuation."
0: Yeah. Okay. That's very interesting. So it would appear that workers have got some some leverage here for sure. Now you're a guy with, you've got your finger on the pulse of this at, at talent.com. You guys are a recruiting platform there. Are you seeing, are you seeing this in your, in your job at talent.com that people or employees or they've got a little bit more power now to, to bargain for these type of benefits, maybe including maybe a shorter work week?
4: Yeah, you know what we do is, uh, you know what what we're calling it right now is is a war on talent that's really happening, um, and you know that's backed up by uh, we see uh, just last month uh, the government of Canada put out a release uh, titled "Tackling the Labor Shortage by Helping More Skilled Refugees and Other Displaced People Build Their Careers in Canada." That's literally the title of the release, and so it's it's you know pretty well uh, understood at least within the recruiting industry that. You know, companies need to to do things to be competitive in order to get top talent because they need to fill those jobs to continue growing. And right now, the reality is is some companies are going to struggle to do that. And so what that does is puts the power, at least right now, in the job seekers' hands. If you look back, you know, not too many years ago, let's say 2016, there was, you know, close to four or five unemployed people for every single job opening. And so, yeah, we can all remember looking for a job. That's, That's a tough thing to do when jobs are sparse. But that's not yeah. really the reality that Canadians are facing right now. And so companies are having to bend and, and try to make adjustments, whether that's doing more employer branding or things like adopting this more hybrid, remote kind of schedule, or even a four-day work week.
0: Right. And when people are looking around and trying to make a decision on a on a job for themselves, I know that what especially when it comes to this four day work week, a lot of people would love to to get into something like that. Your survey found why do people want that? Like They want that better work-life balance that everyone talks about, right? That's what people are looking for largely.
4: Totally, for sure. The number one reason yeah. was better work-life balance. Um, and, yeah. and when we say, well, what are you going to do with that time? Uh, what are you going to use the extra time for? 71% of people said leisure and recreation. I'm going to have fun. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that even ranked above personal appointments and household chores. And, you know, that really people just want to use the time to – to get their mental health in order, to make sure they've got good work-life balance and, uh, you know, keep themselves motivated.
0: Okay. It's a really interesting survey. Robert, thank you for coming on to talk about it today.
4: No problem at all, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, let's talk about the big news in the TV landscape in America this week. And Tucker Carlson gone from Fox News. Now, it follows, of course, that massive libel settlement between Fox and Dominion voting systems. Let's go back to Monday here. Here is how Fox broke the news to their viewers. You will also hear the voice here of CNN analyst Sarah Fisher. Let's listen.
2: We have some news from within our Fox family. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have mutually
0: agreed to part ways. Tucker's last show was this past Friday. We wanna thank Tucker Carlson for his service to the network as a host, and prior
2: to that, as a long-term contributor.
3: Not only was Tucker Carlson like the highest rated personality on Fox, John, he was one of the highest rated shows on all of cable. So it's an explosive move that Fox is going to do this, especially to your point ahead of the 2024 election.
0: All right. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jared Holt. Jared is a senior researcher at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Jared, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, Jared, first let's start with the the announcement two days ago now from Fox News that Tucker Carlson is out. Did that surprise you at all? Because it seemed in the aftermath of the Dominion libel suit it looked like Tucker Carlson had survived this thing, and he would continue. Are you surprised he's gone? I was surprised he was gone. I, I think a lot of people were. Um,
3: you know, Even going back and looking at tape of uh, Tucker Carlson's show on Friday, he tells his viewers that he'll see them again on Monday. And come Monday morning, uh, you know, Fox News PR puts out this press statement stating that that Friday show actually was Tucker's last show. Uh, So it's, you you know, I I think it's surprising for a variety of reasons. I think it's, you know, it's still kind of an open question in my mind, at least, Uh, you know, what finally did it? Um, You know, I can't help but wonder, given, you know, Tucker's years spreading all kinds of conspiracy theories and hate movement talking points, uh, you know, what was the straw that finally broke the camel's back? Um, You know, we don't really know for sure just yet, but I'm sure you know, with a place like Fox News and how, uh, you know, that place leaks like crazy, that we'll have a better understanding.
0: Soon. This, of course, follows the Fox News libel payment to Dominion Voting Systems here over the stolen election story. 787 million U.S. It's over over a billion dollars Canadian. Do we know for sure now that Tucker Carlson's departure here from Fox is, is not part of that settlement? Is This is a separate thing? Uh, We don't know for
3: sure. Uh, You know, it's also possible that his, you know, sudden departure was a combination of things. There were many factors that went into it. Um, You know, certainly there were some materials that came out in pretrial discovery uh, in that case that were pretty unfavorable to Tucker, not just in how he discussed various election denying figures, um, you know, copying to not. Believing a lot of the election conspiracy theories that he and others on his network uh, were spreading, uh, but also expressing a, a distaste for Trump, uh, who is still effectively the leader of the Republican Party. Could,
0: could you discuss a little bit about the role that Tucker Carlson played in sort of the, the mega media world here, his role in spreading the, the stolen election story? It, of course, a major trigger to the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol. So many other Trump-related stories. Speaking of Trump, how did how big a role did Tucker play in all of that?
3: Um, you know, I think besides maybe Trump himself, uh, Tucker was one of the most successful people, and certainly I would say the most successful media figure, at least, uh, to channel the kind of uh, you know fit, you know nastier underbelly of Republican-aligned politics that. Uh, Trump was able to bring into the spotlight so prominently. Um, My buddy Mike Hayden at SPLC sort of made the same point when we were, uh, the other day, where, you know, it's not just Tucker's voice that is gone from Fox News now. Uh, In a lot of respects, it is theirs too, um, because this program, you know, essentially became as successful as it was by holding a mirror up to those different, uh, you know, clicks in the pro-Trump universe and giving them, you know, arguably the largest uh, broadcast platform that you can as it relates to political news anyway.
0: Let's talk a little bit about some of the other jeopardy that Fox is facing here. There's other lawsuits. There's there's this lawsuit from Smartmatic, another voting, voting machine company. They're suing Fox for $2.7 billion. So that's still hanging out there. You mentioned that Tucker Carlson had, had crossed swords with some of his coworkers here. There's this other lawsuit by Abby Grossman, who is his, one of his former producers, and she had been fired by Fox News. And, boy, she has a story to tell. How much more trouble is Fox in here? Um, I mean, it's hard to say. I
3: can't predict the future, of course, but I, I do think that this was certainly not the last shoe to drop. Um, you know, the Dominion settlement of course, damaged Fox, not only financially, uh, but publicly, you know, the, the guise of being a news organization, uh, I, I think was pretty damaged by revelations in that lawsuit. Um, and, you know, the Smartmatic lawsuit is still pending. So there may be even more information that comes out through that. And um, Fox may, serve, you know, suffer additional financial and, uh, you know, public perception losses in respect to that um, you know not to mention this uh, you know workplace matter lawsuit it, there are definitely more shoes to drop uh, in this story the going is likely to get rougher for Fox News uh, before it gets better and I think it's very likely that you know through all of this you know we've already seen them cut not just Uh, you know, Tucker Carlson, but also other figures on the network like Dan Bongino. Um, You know, I I think it's likely before we really line up for 2024 that we see the network go through a type of identity crisis in the same way that I think a lot of, uh, you know, Republican politics in general are, uh, you know, also doing.
0: Last question for you here. What would you say is potentially next for Tucker Carlson here? Like, presumably he won't go away. Maybe does he start up another show somewhere else? Could he make a jump into politics himself? I've heard that speculation here the last couple of days.
3: Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Um, you know, it, it is a lot of speculation at this point, and I think it's certainly a fair question. Um, You know, we may see Tucker Carlson start a podcast or, you know, a media operation of his own akin to what he did uh, with the Daily Caller earlier in his career. Um, We may see another network pick him up. Um, We Mm -hmm. may see him sort of dip out uh, entirely or pursue other methods of influence like running for political office. Uh, We don't know just yet, uh, but. Tucker Carlson is not a poor man. He's a a very wealthy man uh, from a wealthy family. Um, So, you know, it's not as if he's going to be hurting for cash anytime soon, right? So whatever he does is going to, you know, he'll be able to kind of chart that destiny himself. Um, And, you know, given all the things that we've learned about Tucker, uh, you know, through the years and the ways we've seen him behave with his news channel, I think, you know, is kind of an open question of, you know, whether that's going to be, you know, something corrosive or whether it could be something more benign.
0: Okay, well, we're going to follow it with great interest. Jared, thank you for coming on with your thoughts and analysis today. I appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.